Welcome everyone to the Ask JP podcast, where we get into the issues of the day, issues that are important to all of you back at home. And this is part of our criminal justice series where we're interviewing candidates for criminal district court and for district attorney. Today we have Mr. Graham Bosworth. Uh, Graham Bosworth was raised in the Holly Grove Dixon area and graduated from Benjamin Franklin. He went to UT Austin and received his law degree from Suffolk University Law School. Graham previously sat as judge pro tempore in Orleans Parish Criminal District Court, Section D, the section he's actually running for. Graham began his legal career in 2005 with the district attorney's office. As a member of the appeals division, Graham represented the state in oral arguments before a variety of courts, including the Louisiana Supreme Court. In 2010, Graham opened his own law practice with a focus on, crim on criminal trial practice and appeals. Graham also contracted with the public defender in Jefferson Parish over the past decade, where he's represented defendants in cases ranging from narcotic offenses to armed robbery to second degree murder. Graham is also a member of the Criminal Justice Act panel for the Eastern District of Louisiana. Thank you so much for being here today, Graham. I really appreciate it. I know we've talked plenty of times off the record on CJR stuff, and I think it's really exciting for people to kind of hear from you today on what things you are for, what things you're against, and just generally speaking, kind of what you are about as a judge. Is there anything you want to add before we get started? Yeah, I feel like most of the uh, pertinent information will probably come out during the questioning, so let's just jump into it. All right. Well, first and foremost, what made you want to be a criminal court judge? Well, that's a uh, kind of complicated question. When I first started in the DA's office, I remember thinking, you know what, I feel like I could do this job and do it well. Um, I remember thinking at the time I would never run for office, so it was kind of an academic point. Um, when I started doing criminal defense work, when I started working in the public defender's office in 2010, I really came face to face with a lot of the inequities that are in the system that I think I was aware of when I was in the DA's office, but you know, I, I was doing appellate work. I, I wasn't in the trenches. I wasn't doing day-to-day uh, -day work. I wasn't meeting with defendants and witnesses. I was arguing kind of legal issues um, and really kind of delving into uh, the jurisprudence. And when I started doing criminal defense work and I met the people who were in the system, I met the witnesses who were in the system, I met the victims who were in the system, and I really came face to face with the system failing. And I, I don't know a better way, word to uh, put it. I, I decided that I could sit and complain about it or I could do something about it. Uh, and so I started volunteering. I was uh, with the Sentencing Commission. I started working with Nora Sanderson and Vote. I've gone up to Baton Rouge. I started testifying on behalf of legislation. I helped co-write um, the legislation doing away with juvenile life sentences. I mean, this became something that was incredibly important to me. I joined the Bar Association's Criminal Justice Committee where I've served as a chair for, I guess, since 2017. And then one of the things I said I could do is actually follow through with that thought I'd had years previously at the DA's office and run for judge. Um, so I did. I ran in 2014. It, it didn't quite work the way I was expecting it to because what was supposed to be an open seat didn't end up being an open seat. Um, but I was able to take the opportunity to highlight a lot of the issues that I have with the uh, criminal justice system, the way money bail works, the multiple bill and its detrimental effect on due process and frankly society. Uh, the, the, what I see is the incorrect mindset that a lot of judges have that cases need to move quick quickly for a judge to be considered a good judge. I mean, I, I fundamentally disagree with that entire mindset. 
and to start bringing attention to some of those issues. Um, fortunately, the Supreme Court uh, gave me the opportunity to sit in 2016 and kind of give me the opportunity to, to take my mindset and what I think could be done differently to criminal district court. And I got six months to do it. And I realized that I, you can make a difference. A, a single judge can make a difference, not just in a courtroom, but kind of across the courthouse and across the, uh, the state. I changed search and seizure law across Louisiana when I was a, a judge. It was incredibly rewarding. It was incredibly encouraging. So now I'm running for the seat again. All right. Well, and I think you kind of exp expounded on this already, but can you describe what your judicial philosophy would be like as a judge? And I mean, if you need me to explain the question, I don't think you do. I mean, most judges kind of have an idea of what they think their role as a judge is and how they can impact the system. You, like you already said, you've, you did a landmark work on search and seizure, but generally speaking, if I'm a person who's may be in front of you as a citizen someday accused of a crime, what is your philosophy on criminal justice? Well, I mean, philosophy covers a, a lot of different areas. Um, first and foremost, my, as a judge, I recognize that the system has inherent flaws. There, there are inequities that are just baked into the system. Some intentionally, I mean, when you talk about the non-unanimous jury verdict, I, I don't think there's any question that that uh, was intended um, to, to cause inequities, especially in the black population. Uh, some maybe unintentionally. I mean, the multiple bill, you, uh, there, there's an argument to be made, I guess, that that was uh, designed with the best of intentions. But in the end, the system basically results in unjust outcomes far too often. And as a judge, you know, I, I heard a lot uh, as an attorney, the judges are just there to call balls and strikes. No, a, a judge is just calling balls and strikes. Then a judge is perpetuating inequities. A judge has to be willing to step in and say, no, the system is failing here. Um, you know, I talk about a, a case uh, a lot on the, uh, the campaign trail where I was representing an individual who's charged with, um, charged with rape. Um, and I was able to do uh, DNA testing and actually some other scientific testings. And the DNA tests um, the, established that he wasn't a contributor of the material that was collected in the case. And the prosecutor basically said, I can get a conviction anyway, because they're responsive verdicts. You can overcharge in a case. You, you can hope and uh, expect that the jury will, you know, use the safety net that's, uh, that exists to, to come up with a conviction anyway. Um, and that's exactly what happened. This, uh, the, the accuser took the stand and said, I don't know why the, the DNA evidence came back uh, the way it did. You know, he did it. And I stood in front of the jury and I said, you know, I, and I really believe the system uh, was going to work and said, there are a million people, are reasons why people lie. You could be protecting someone. You can be embarrassed. It doesn't really matter why, but science doesn't lie. DNA evidence doesn't lie. And the jury came back with an attempt, which logically made no sense. I mean, obviously this uh, woman had had a sexual relationship with someone. There was DNA evidence. Uh, she had actually contracted an STD that my client didn't even have, which was what led to the entire thing in the first place. And it obviously wasn't my client because the DNA evidence exonerated him. But the jury came back with an attempt because they basically just split the baby. The system failed. And the judge had the ability in that case to overturn the jury. A, a post-verdict judgment of acquittal was something that I filed and the judge wouldn't do it. He said, politically, it was too hot for him to, to do. So he said, no. I filed a motion for a new trial. The judge wouldn't do it to give another jury the chance to get it right. That judge stood back and said, system worked the way it worked. It's out of my hands. That was the wrong mindset. That individual, despite the fact that DNA exonerated him, 
is serving a life sentence because then the uh, DA followed up with a multiple bill because when he was 18 years old, he'd opened a couple doors on cars and got two burglary charges. And he was given a mandatory life sentence despite the fact that DNA evidence exonerated him and the judge did nothing. I mean, we talk about a case that inspired me to run for, for judge. It, it, it still infuriates me. So a judge can't just sit there and call balls and strikes. A judge has to be willing to step in and recognize the inequities that exist and do something about it when the system fails. A judge has to be respectful. I mean, I, it's another just uh, pet peeve of mine, watching judges uh, use their position to, to berate and abuse people. That kind of a mentality has a, has a chilling effect on justice. It can't happen. Um, and judges who are more concerned with moving their docket than they are with ensuring the due process is protected. It, it, it has to stop. You know, judges need to be able to, uh, need to recognize that when charges are filed, it's often the result of months, if not years of investigative work. And to then turn around and say, all right, defense, we're going to trial in two months, six months, sometimes even a year. That's not tenable. That's not necessarily fair. Judges need to accept the fact that a case isn't going to necessarily resolve immediately and give everyone an equal opportunity to be heard in the courtroom. And that's something that doesn't happen often. It's a pretty thorough answer. Uh, let me go over a couple of different specific issues that I think are important to voters as they're looking to see who they're going to vote for for judge. What is your position on the cash bail system? And based upon your answer, maybe you could throw in there how you would change it if you disagree with it. I mean, yes, I disagree with it. I don't, I don't think that that's news to anybody. Um, I helped co-author a paper and my position as chair of the uh, Bar Association's Criminal Justice uh, Committee kind of highlighting a lot of the inequities uh, of the system. But when you are basically, when a system exists that create, the bail system creates two systems of justice. One for those who can afford to get out on bail and one for those who can't. Those who can afford to get out on bail then have the opportunity to fight their, their, their case. They're not worried about losing their jobs. They're not worried about losing their apartment. They're not worried about you know, losing custody of their kids. Those who get stuck in jail don't have that luxury and they all too often plead guilty for no other reason than to get out of jail. And what's more offensive to me than that is when those people plead, they're given probation. So the, the bail bond system in theory exists in order to ensure the appearance of someone in court and to protect society. <clears throat> but if the end result of a plea negotiation means that this person is being released they can't really have been deemed to be a threat to society in the first place because you're just putting them back out on the streets. So this, this system is really, in my mind, designed to move cases more so than it is to protect society. Pretrial services, um, relationships with uh, nonprofits in the city do a much better job of ensuring people show up for, uh, to court than a, a bail bond would. And if someone really is a danger to society, if the court makes that determination, if the DA's office meets their burden of proof, as far as I'm concerned, of establishing that, then that person doesn't get released. You, you don't go through this hollow effort of, of setting you know, $500,000 or $1 million bail uh, in order to just perpetuate the, the, the bail bond system. Um, having said that, the statutes exist and, and you know, bail bonds are required in certain situations. But whether or not, if you're asking if I agree with the bail bond system, I don't. I, I, I think it's more, far more damaging than it is uh, beneficial because you can achieve the same ends without it. Uh, and in terms of what am I going to do to, to address my concerns with it, 
make sure that nobody is in jail for no other reason than they can't afford bond, work with community partners, uh, be it drug treatment providers, be it housing assistance, be it job training and pretrial services in order to ensure that people have the, the necessary support to get back to court and really make the onus on the DA's office to establish that someone is a legitimate threat and have a presumption of release um, when you're dealing with uh, those uh, the determinations whether or not somebody should be released in the first place. Okay. Um, I know you previously touched on this with your specific case you talked about, but obviously you're not for mandatory minimums. Um, they are currently the law of the land. And as a judge, considering that they are the law of the land, that DAs absolutely will pursue them. Could you give kind of a more robust idea of what you would do as a judge in regards to mandatory minimums? Well, mandatory minimums are a one facet of a, of a, of a larger issue that drives mass incarceration. Uh, and mass incarceration is obviously a huge deal across the country, but it's, it's all it, it's a huge deal in Louisiana because Louisiana incarcerates more people per capita than any place on the planet. And Orleans Parish incarcerates more people per capita than any place in Louisiana. So mass incarceration obviously is a huge problem. The bail bond system, the multiple bill, mandatory minimums and responsive verdicts. I mean, all of these um, systemic parts of our criminal justice system drive this uh, issue. So when you talk about mandatory minimums, you're really only talking about one facet of this kind of larger problem. So what do you do about mandatory minimums as a judge? Well, first and foremost, you have authority under Dorothy to go below mandatory minimums. Judges need to use that more often. Um, but judges also can, during pretrial um, hearings, during preliminary examinations, find no probable cause. Because of the responsive verdict system that exists, DA's often, offices often overcharge because they've got nothing to lose. It's not like another state where if you charge someone with murder, even though you know it's really only a negligent homicide, you're gonna get a not guilty and somebody's gonna walk. You can charge someone with murder and then have negligent homicide be a responsive verdict and have this kind of safety net. Judges and preliminary examinations have the authority to step in and say no probable cause as it relates to uh, the, the, the actual charge that's uh, in place and then kind of to a degree buffer this system of overcharging, which then gets rid of some of these mandatory minimums in the first place. Um, and I mean, other than those two systems, ensuring that everybody has the constitutional right to, to be heard in court, making sure people aren't stuck in jail and have the right to defend themselves, and then giving defendants the opportunity to be heard and to investigate their cases and present defenses. I mean, that is generally the, the system that I think a judge has um, at their disposal at their disposal in order to address a lot of those inequities. Okay, and what is your position on the death penalty? I am both kind of morally and legally opposed to the death penalty. Uh, from, from a constitutional perspective, I mean, we, we exist in a, a society where we as individuals have voluntarily given up certain rights to the government under the theory that by doing so we have enhanced our collective safety. I've never given the government the right to kill me. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, anybody would agree that they've given the, the government the right to, to kill them in certain situations. So not only do I think it's personally uh, offensive, I just don't think constitutionally it should be allowed. 
Uh, and then on a more practical level, I just don't think it has any benefit. There have been countless studies that have shown that the death penalty has no real deterrent effect. And then the, the death penalty system is exorbitantly expensive. It is incredibly detrimental to the, the kind of collective criminal justice system. And more often than not, even when death penalty cases are successfully prosecuted, it's, it's decades of post-conviction relief applications and rarely is anyone actually even put to death. The entire system is kind of pointless in my mind. Um, so that's a very long answer to a very short question. No, it's, it's, it's well, you, it's, it's not really a question. I think that if you, if you give the topic of the death penalty a real consideration, you should not be able to give a short answer. I mean, for most people that are pro-death penalty, their answer is usually a sentence or two, which in my experience, just from a legislative perspective, when I talk to people, if you make them try to rationalize it beyond the fact that it's vengeance, it tends to fall apart. I mean, as far as, especially considering that, at least in most instances that I've dealt with in Orleans Parish, it's been especially kind of surreal in that more often than not, the victim's families don't want the death penalty either. And you see prosecutors pursue the death penalty despite the fact the victim's family say we're opposed to the death penalty, we don't think a person should die. So I think given a lengthy answer is actually tells voters you've given actual consideration of the issue and you fully thought it out. Um, I think you've kind of answered this, but I think I should also specifically ask just because I've asked everybody else this, what is your position on judicial activism? And by that, I mean that there's always kind of this, this debate regarding judges as whether judges should be activists. So they just follow the law, like you said, call the balls and strikes. Or if they see inequity in the system, within the system, what can they do to change it? And do you support judges being that way? Well, I mean, I think it's obvious that I, I support judicial activism. Uh, I understand the, the concerns because it, that power and the authority that a judge has can be abused. And so there have been systems of control that have been put in place to take discretion away from judges in order to, to, to get there. But the problem, of course, is the systems of control and then the laws that have been created aren't perfect either. And if, I mean, if, if someone could come and say that I've created a perfect legal system that regardless of the situation will always result in an equitable outcome, you wouldn't need judicial activism. But it's never gonna happen. There are always going to be inequities that are going to exist and you always need to have judges who have the authority and the ability to step in, recognize those inequities and address them. Unfortunately, that means it's really incumbent upon the voters to put judges into place who have the ability to do that, who have the experience to do that, who have the knowledge to do that. Um, otherwise, you have bad laws and then sometimes bad judges, and that's a combustible combination. Okay. Do you consider yourself a reform candidate? And if so, why do you consider yourself a reform candidate? I mean, that label has been uh, placed on a lot of us. I'll own it, sure. Um, because I do think that there are problems with the system. So when, you know, when I talk about how a, the legal system is never going to be perfect, that doesn't mean you can't recognize problems and seek to change them. Uh, I've advocated for changing the, the, the money bail system. That's reform. So I guess that makes me a reform candidate. I have been a vocal opponent of the multiple bill system. I, on, regardless of the initial intention, the multiple bill punishes individuals for exercising their constitutional rights. Plain and simple. 
that has to change. That makes me a reform candidate, I'll own it. Um, you know, I, in terms of rethinking the way judges approach their job, in terms of rethinking you know, what makes a good judge, I, I'm a vocal proponent of, of not worrying about how quickly you move cases and the size of your docket necessarily. I think, frankly, the Metropolitan Crime Commission's metrics have been incredibly destructive. Um, if that makes me a reform candidate, I'll own it. I think that's a very well thought answer. Uh, something a little lighter. How's your experience been campaigning during COVID? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, this is my second time running for office. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm an expert or I'm an old hand at this, but in, in my experience, running for office, you're in a bubble in the first place. You know, you don't necessarily know whether or not your message is, is reaching voters. You don't know. Uh, it's not like you're running for president. You can do a poll and it's on everybody's uh, consciousness. You're running for a judgeship, which voters tend to not necessarily pay all that much attention to. And then it's not even a civil court judge, it's a criminal court judge. And traditionally voters haven't necessarily paid all that much attention to a criminal court. And uh, then when you put COVID in the equation, so you're not even having face-to-face -face interactions with voters, it's like a double bubble. So you've gone from one bubble and then another one uh, separating you further. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in that you're kind of guessing as to whether or not you're, you're being heard. Um, you have Zoom forums, and that's you know, helpful, um, but you, you really are limited from direct interaction with, with voters the way uh, you would otherwise. Having said that, the kind of national attention to criminal justice reform issues has really kind of uh, percolated its way down to Louisiana and uh, New Orleans uh, specifically. So there really is, in a way that didn't exist in 2014 when I ran, a real awareness that what goes on in criminal district court not only affects the individuals who are charged and not only affects their family, but really affects the city as a whole. And that kind of recognition of the importance of the judicial races has been really encouraging. I would agree. This is a little thornier question, but I want you to keep it clean. I'll keep it clean. <laughs> Why are you more qualified than your opponent? <clears throat> I keep that clean. Uh, frankly, I, I like my opponent. Um, we've known each other for uh, a long time, but I think there's three uh, important differences uh, between us. The first is while we both have uh, criminal trial experience, my opponent doesn't have the, the appellate experience I have. My opponent doesn't have the depth and breadth of knowledge of, of the law the way I do in terms of the work that I've done uh, uh, on the appeals end at the Court of Appeal, at the Louisiana Supreme Court, at the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. Um, you know, my, my, I think my knowledge of the law is, is unique in, uh, in this race, at least, if not uh, across the, uh, the, the candidates running in 2020. The second uh, real difference is that I actually have done this job. You know, Justice Johnson and the Supreme Court appointed me to serve as the judge pro tempore of criminal district court Section D in 2016, and I sat on the bench for half a year. For six months, day in, day out, I was the judge of Section D. I presided over 10 jury trials. I presided over upwards to 100 motion hearings, uh, bail bond issues, sentencing issues. I mean, everything that appears on a docket, I've done it. And I'd like to say I did it well, and my record speaks for itself. Uh, I mean, go ask a practitioner. Actually, you appeared in front of me. You could probably answer yeah. the question better than I can. One of my rare criminal criminal court experiences, and it was 
very different than what I've been in front of career judges in that you actually read all the filings. You were aware, you were aware of the case and it went relatively quickly, which I can say, honestly, having dealt with a variety of judges over at criminal district court, they often rely upon the parties the day of to explain the case to them rather than read the filings beforehand. And as you know, as a judge, that really, first off, it makes the entire experience miserable because you've spent all this time creating filings that you want a judge to read so that you don't have to regurgitate everything you wrote. And more importantly, if there are issues of law in front of a judge and they read the filings, they can research before the hearing to know, is this actually a material issue that I have to rule on or is it just kind of like a bunch of verbal vomit? And so, yeah, I, I was in front of you once and it was it was a good experience. I could say, honestly, personally, as a practitioner, it was a pretty good experience. Um, and while my opponent uh, has some experience as well, she's been appointed ad hoc, which basically means on a case-by-case -case basis over in juvenile court, which has a completely different body of law. And the third difference is uh, my opponent got into uh, the race a couple weeks before qualifying, uh, which is a right. I mean, nobody owns any of these seats. But I've been involved in the criminal justice reform effort for the better part of a decade. I have been in Baton Rouge advocating for uh, legislative changes for the better part of a decade. I have been working at the Sentencing Commission or the Bar Association's Criminal Justice Committee and using my platform as chair there, advocating for changes and addressing and highlighting the inequities in the system for over a decade. This is, this, this is my passion. This is what I've been doing. And you know, I, I feel like I have a, a, a deep and complex understanding of what I think is going wrong in courtrooms and that I can bring that mindset back to the court and really make some, uh, some needed changes. Well, is there anything else you want to add for voters out there who are trying to make a decision before November 3rd? I would say this, what goes on in criminal court affects everyone, whether or not you are you know, a Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. For far too long, voters have not necessarily paid attention to criminal court. And as a result, inequities have affected constitutional rights. Vast amounts of money have been wasted on needless incarceration. And we are now in a position to change what is going on in criminal district court. I have been advocating for these changes, as I've said, for the better part of 10 years. I have the experience and the knowledge to actually make a difference. And I'm number 87 on the ballot. My name is Graham Bosworth, and I'm asking for your vote. Also, where, what's your Twitter handle and your website? My Twitter handle? I'm not sure if we have Twitter. We have... Uh, you have Twitter because I, I used it earlier. So <laughs> you have Twitter. I believe it's Bosworth for Judge. All right. At Bosworth for Judge. The website <laughs> is bosworthforjudge.com. With number four. Number four. It's very, Twitter very is apparently Bosworth for Judge. Uh, we have Instagram and we also have Facebook. I think I believe it's all Bosworth for Judge. Okay. Well... And we also have YouTube. Yeah. YouTube. Oh, you're fancy. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Graham. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm sure that this will be very helpful for voters who are trying to make a decision. I wish that more attention was paid to these CJR races, and I wish there were more debates and more just general interest from the media as far as what's going on. But instead, there's me. So you get me. But thanks, Graham. Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you virtually six to 12 feet away on the campaign trail. I appreciate it. Thanks, JP. Thanks.